Good morning, church. Uh, I, it was shared during the announcements just a reminder that the children left for Creation Kids, but they will be coming back um, towards the end of the sermon to join us for our communion this morning. So if you have children, they'll be coming back to join you. <clears throat> well, I was interested um, this week to see that NBC launched a new evening drama series. Uh, it was funny timing to me of all weeks. Um, this week, the series is entitled The Enemy Within. One of the primary characters is a woman who served in the CIA and who became a traitor in order to save her daughter's life. There was one particular moment when the woman was forced to make an almost split-second decision that would affect her daughter's life, and the decision she made caused her to be considered a traitor. David had a moment in his life, too, where he made a decision in order to save his own life. The Enemy Within might just be a good title for this segment of David's life, too. And we really didn't collaborate with NBC at all this week. Um, today, we'll be looking more closely at a lesser known or lesser talked about time in David's life. It's found in 1 Samuel chapters 27 to 30. It's a long, long passage. Um, it's a time when David joined with the Philistines. David joined with the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. Let's pray. Thank you, God, um, once again this morning for your word. We thank you that we um, have the privilege and the joy of spending time in your word together, individually during the week and together when we meet here. Um, we pray, God, that you would speak to us um, and that you would break up any fallow ground that might be in any of our hearts this morning. Help us to hear you, um, to respond to you, to um, have you speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get to the passage this morning, it might be helpful to just review the setting quickly. In, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, Samuel anointed David because the Lord told Samuel that David would be king. Then in chapter 17, David fought against the nine and a half foot tall uh, Philistine Goliath, who was from Gath. Um, and in chapter 18, David's popularity uh, grew and grew and, and grew. Um, he won the affection of, when, when he killed Goliath, he won the affection of King Saul and the Israelites. But as his popularity grew, Saul became jealous of David and uh, feared that he would take his kingdom. So Saul began to conspire to kill David. And then in chapter 19, Saul's son Jonathan warned David of Saul's intention. And Saul's daughter, who later became David's wife, helped him to escape from Saul's um, clutches. And thus began David's eight, and some say ten, but eight long years of fleeing for his life. Just think about that for a minute. Eight years of living and hiding and constantly on the run. These years are covered in chapter 20 and following of 1 Samuel. So at different points during those eight years, the Lord used several people to confirm David's calling and anointing. These individuals spoke words of promise of the Lord's protection and of David's future reign as king. In 1 Samuel 23, 16 and 17, Saul's son Jonathan helped David find strength in God. He said, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And then in 1 Samuel 24, 20, after David had spared Saul's life, 
Saul says, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. In 1 Samuel 25, 28 to 30, Abigail, who later became David's wife, said, the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord. I, I love those words. The life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. And then she said that the Lord would do for David every good thing he promised concerning him and would appoint him leader over Israel. And in 1 Samuel 26, 25, after David spared Saul's life for the second time, Saul then said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David, it seems, should have been confident that the Lord would not allow Saul to triumph over him, that he'd be protected from Saul's murderous attempts, that he would indeed be king someday. But the years of hiding and the years of running must have taken a toll on David's confidence. David, by the time we get to chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, seems to have entered a period of his life in which he may have been overcome by exhaustion, fear, and despair. It's like a triple threat to our, our good thinking exhaustion, fear, and despair. Chapter 27, the beginning of this story in David's life, begins with the word, but. But. Howard Hendricks, who taught at Dallas Theological Seminary for years, has said, the word but is a clue that a change of direction is coming. But is one of the most important words, he said, that you'll ever come across in your study of scripture. Whenever you see it, always stop and ask, what is the contrast being made? Maybe we should, when we're reading our Bible, circle every time we see the word but, or if we're using an electronic one, highlight it. <clears throat> Here's the contrast between a David who trusts in the promise of God and a tired, fearful David who seems to be seeking his own way of protecting himself rather than seeking God. So 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. A period of darkness began in David's life, not outright rebellion, but a gradual slipping into darkness, away from the light of the Lord. And it began with one sure step, David thought to himself. David trusted in his own thinking. He relied on his own human view, which was tainted by the pressure of fleeing from Saul. Unlike the months and chapters leading up to this point, he didn't seek the Lord's perspective. In verse 1, we see that David not only trusted in his own thinking, but his thoughts seem to be filled with pessimism. Chuck Swindoll says that one can almost hear the Eeyore-like drone in David's thinking. I don't do a good Eeyore impression, but I know Saul's going to get me. This is in stark contrast to an earlier perspective recorded in Psalm 56 and verses 4 and also 11, in which David said, In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, we're told in the introductory caption to the psalm, was written the first time 
that David had gone to Gath, to the home city of Goliath, one of the five main cities of the Philistines. David went to Gath, a place that was ruled by King Achish, and when he was running away from Saul in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel. At that time, the Philistines recognized and seized David, and in order to escape, he pretended to be insane, which allowed him to be sent away from King Achish's presence. He didn't want to have anything to do with him, and so he was able to leave Gath. Verse 13 of Psalm 56 that he wrote at that time says, For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David trusted in his own thinking. He was pessimistic. He used questionable logic. And for the second time, decided to flee to the land of the Philistines, to the land of the Philistines, to the enemies of the Israelites, to the mockers of God, in order to hide from Saul. And thus began what appears to be a downward spiral during this part of his life. For the sake of time, we're not going to read through most of these chapters. I'm going to try to recount the story for you as quickly as I can, and our dear brother, uh, Sia, who's at the projection desk, is going to try to keep up to me, up with me. The verses will be um, projected. You can read them as we talk. Um, in verses 2 and 3, David acted on his thought, his self-made plan for security, and he took his two wives and his 600 men and their families to settle in Gath with King Achish. These 600 men, by the way, were uh, quite a crew. They included, we're told in 1 Samuel 22, that they included David's brothers and his father's household. And we might think, oh, that's nice, his brothers are with him. But just remember, David's brothers probably aren't very fond of him at this point in time. He's the runt of the litter who now has been declared that he will be the king, um, passed by all the others um, on the way to him. Uh, being anointed, and um, also, you know, David's life is at risk, and so they are probably thinking, well, our lives are at risk also, so the safest place to be is probably wherever David is, and so um, his brothers and his father's household, um, who may have had feelings about him still, joined his company. First Samuel 22 tells us the others who joined were hundreds of men who were in distress or in debt, or discontented. Now, isn't that the company that you'd like to have with you? They were in distress, or in debt, or discontented. Um, and then he had with him Abiathar, the priest, a son of Ahimelech, the priest whose help for David in chapter 22 angered Saul and caused the slaughter of 85 priests of that family. Abiathar escaped that slaughter and joined David. So then in verse 4, when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he called off the search as David had hoped. In verse 5, we're told that David submitted to an enemy king by asking for a place to live under his reign, saying, if I have found favor in your eyes. And then in verse 6, David and his 600 men were given the town Ziklag. In verse 7, we're told that he lived with the Philistines for 16 months. 16 months, that's a long time. And interestingly, there are no known psalms from this 16-month period in David's life. Well, David's initial choice to join the Philistines was a questionable one. And like such choices tend to do, it seems to have led to other questionable choices in verses 8 to 12. In verses 8 and 9, 
David seems double-minded. He was an Israelite at heart, but he played the part of a Philistine. He raided and plundered other tribes to give the impression that he was with the Philistines without doing harm to Israel. James 1.8 tells us that a double-minded person is unstable in all he does. Verse 10, David resorted to lying. When Achish asked him where he went raiding, he lied to imply that he had attacked Israel and, and its surrounding friends. And then in verse 11, David became deeply involved in secrecy and cover-up. Whenever he and his men raided, they killed everyone, man, woman, child, in order to cover his tracks so that no one could be brought to Gath to tell Achish that David wasn't raiding those who said he was. So David's goal had been to gain Achish's favor, and he was successful in that. In verse 12, we're told, Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. And as if all that double-mindedness and lying and secrecy and cover-up weren't enough, the plot thickens. In 1 Samuel 28, verses 1 and 2, the only two verses from this chapter that we'll be looking at, they tell us that in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. The Philistine gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. We're not told what David was thinking at this time or what he was planning to do. We hope and trust that he had no real intention of fighting against Israel. The rest of chapter 28 is about Saul and the unraveling of his kingship near the end of his life. So our story picks up again uh, with David among the Philistines in chapter 29, where the plot of David's life seems to thicken even more, if that's possible. So chapter 29, verses 1 and 2, the Philistines and the Israelites prepared for battle, and David and his men marched at the rear of the Philistine army with Achish. In verses 3 to 5, the other Philistine rulers didn't trust David, though Achish trusted him with his life. They challenged Achish about David's presence with them and as they went up to battle, and they insisted that David and his men be sent back so that they couldn't turn on them during the battle. This idea of a turncoat didn't just start with the Revolutionary War and the British and the, and the U.S. soldiers that even back in Bible times, it was a possibility that you could be on the other side and turn and fight against people. So in verses 6 to 11, David and his men were sent back to Ziklag. Let's read those verses. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what, I, what have I done, asked David? What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early along with your master's servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men 
got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David's highly praised by Achish. Jesus' words in Luke 6.26 certainly come to mind. Woe to you, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Well, David finally hits bottom in chapter 30, verses 1 to 6. In verses 1 and 2, while David and his men were heading off to battle with the Philistines, the Amalekites, whom David had previously attacked, did some attacking of their own, perhaps to get revenge for the raiding and plundering that David and his men had done against them. So they raided the, the town of Ziklag. They burned it, and they took all the women, children, and possessions. In verse 3, David and his 600 men returned to Ziklag only to find the town a smoldering ash heap, devoid of any life. In verse 4, we're told that they were all overcome with sorrow, that they wept until they had no more strength left to weep. That's quite a picture, isn't it? 600 men weeping as they've discovered that they've lost their families, they've lost their possessions, they've lost everything. If you've ever cried until you have no strength left to cry anymore, maybe you can understand the intensity of their sorrow and despair. In verse 5, David's two wives had been captured along with all the others, and David experienced in real life the wasteland that's described in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 and 6, where Jeremiah said, Cursed is the one who trusts a man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. As if it weren't bad enough that everybody and everything were gone, David's plight really, even now, got worse. In verse 6, his men, who were bitter because of their missing sons and daughters, threatened to stone him. And the verse says that David was greatly distressed. When I read that, I thought that is the biggest understatement in the scriptures. David was greatly distressed. But David thought to himself. Those words from the beginning of chapter 7 have now led to this moment. And the words of Job's friend uh, in Job 8, 13 to 15 seem fitting here. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. And just when David hits this deep, dark point in his life, we see another appearance of the word but. And once again, what is the contrast being made? David, who thought to himself, who followed his own thinking, not seeking the Lord, after 16 long months, now changes direction and does what he could have, should have, and probably would have done if he had known how it was going to turn out later. Verse 6 says, But David found strength in the Lord his God. But David found strength in the Lord his God. And we breathe a sigh of relief and say, finally. David found himself in a terrible mess, and he could have given up or devised some other human scheme to get out of it, but he didn't. After 16 months of following the way of his own thought, he decided to seek the wisdom of God. 
And in 1 Samuel 37 and 8, we read, Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. This was a linen vestment that was worn by the high priest that was used to seek the Lord. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David had thought to himself, devising his own scheme to hide from Saul, leaning on his own wisdom and thinking, and trusting in in his human wisdom, caused them to experience the wastelands, the desert, the salt lands that Jeremiah describes. Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had absolutely no other place to go. David, with no other place to go, seems to be driven to his knees. He seeks the Lord's wisdom, the Lord's guidance, and because of the faithfulness of God, he receives it. So in verses 9 and 10, it says, David and his 600 men followed the Lord's leading, and they pursued the Amalekites when they stopped at the Besor Ravine. 200 of the men stayed behind, for they were too exhausted to cross the ravine. In verses 11 to 13, as the 400 continued on their way, they found an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite, who had been abandoned in a field when he became ill three days before. So in verse 14, this Egyptian told David about the territories that they had raided, and he told them that they had burned Ziklag. I imagine that those words burned David and his men's hearts, too. In verse 15, David asked the Egyptian to lead him to the raiding party, and after securing David's promise that he wouldn't kill him, that he wouldn't hand him over to his master, the Egyptian agreed to help. And he helped David and his men. In verse 16, they found them. They found the Amalekites. They found them eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken. And their party ended abruptly. In verses 17 to 19, David and his men fought them from dusk of that day until the evening of the next day. And they recovered every person and everything that the Amalekites had taken. In verses 20 and 21, David and his men took back all the flocks and herds that had been taken from them, and they made their way back to the men that they had left to rest at the ravine. In verse 22, we're told that all of the troublemakers and evil men with David, remember, his company isn't the most impressive, all of the troublemakers and evil men with David said that because the 200 did not go out with them, they would not have a share of the plunder that they recovered. And then in verses 23 to 25, David reminded them that the Lord had given the plunder to them. The Lord had given the plunder to them. It wasn't anything that, they, that had come from their own doing. And David declared that the ones who had stayed with the supplies at the ravine would receive the very same share as the ones who went down to the battle. He not only determined this equal sharing for this instance, but the scripture says that it he made it an ongoing statute and ordinance for Israel. Perhaps this is a hint of his coming kingship and definitely a sign of his being a man after God's own heart, of his working for justice, that even today, um, that that's God's perspective, that those who, who serve and those, those who serve in the front lines and those who serve 
behind the scenes and the background and in other ways um, are equal in, in God's standing. This dramatic story from David's life actually ended well. Just as the cursed portion of Jeremiah 17 proved true in David's ex experience, the blessing portion of that passage was true in the story as well. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. I really love uh, that Pastor Hank has chosen to do this series, David, after God's own heart. David's a, a, a favorite Bible character of mine and, uh, and of many of us. I've heard many of you say how much you're appreciating going through parts of the life of David. David's life helps us not to feel alone in our failings, and hopefully it helps inspire us to seek the Lord more and more. Within these 16 months of David's life, there are life lessons from which you and I can benefit. And perhaps David would say to us what C.S. Lewis said when he wrote, Think of me as a fellow patient in the same hospital who, having been admitted a little earlier, could give some advice. What advice might David give to us today? Well, I think first David might say, Trust in the Lord. Put your confidence in him, not in your own strength, not in your own wisdom, not in the strength and wisdom of other people, not in the schemes you might devise to solve the situations of your lives. Trust in the Lord. Seek him first, not last. We can be just like David, can't we, in times of stress, whether it's financial stress or relational stress or job stress or some other kind. Our knee-jerk reaction may be to figure out our own solution, maybe to beg, borrow, or steal, as the saying goes, if the stress is financial, maybe to seek out unhealthy or ungodly relationships in order to deal with relational stress or disappointment or loneliness, or maybe to turn to substances for an escape from the weight of job pressures, and the list for us could go on. But David would tell us to trust God and to seek him, and we can trust God because we know that he's love. We know that he's faithful, that he'll not leave us or forsake us, that he has engraved us on the palm of his hands, that he has given us both his word and his spirit to lead and guide us so that we're not alone, that he cares deeply about our needs. We know that the cattle on a thousand hills are his. And that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will graciously give us all things. We know that he'll complete the work that he began in us. And we know that he's able to do exceedingly above all that we could ask or imagine. That his power, the power of the resurrection, is at work in us. You and I have good cause to trust, don't we? The second piece of advice that I think David might give to us is that when you've fallen or you find yourself on the wrong path, cry out to the Lord. Seek his grace. Change your direction. David requesting God's help in chapter 30, verse 6, brings to mind to me the story of the prodigal son. When the son was at the lowest of low points in Luke 15, 17, it says something similar. It says, when he came to himself. The NIV says, when he came to his senses. He realized it would be better to be with his father, even if he were there as a servant in his father's house rather than as a son. David came to his senses too in Ziklag and experienced the same kind of grace from God 
that the prodigal son received from the father who ran out to embrace him even before the son ever got to the home. David reversed his direction, what we call repentance. He sought the Lord, and God immediately answered him. Did you notice that in that passage, that God immediately answered him? No punishing, silent treatment like we might do when someone has dissed us. No, God's response to David and to David seeking him is pure grace. Pursue them, God immediately answers. Our scripture reading earlier this morning was some selected verses from Psalm 37. David wrote this psalm near the end of his life. Verses 23 and 24 say, The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Have, have you ever started to fall, maybe slipping on ice or tripping over a root as you're walking? And as you start to fall, you reach out to try to grab something to stabilize you. And as you reach out to grab something to stabilize you, maybe someone else comes you know, with you, alongside you, and reaches out and gives you that, 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 that strength, that stability, that hand. That's what David's saying here. That's what God does for us. We don't know what part or part, parts of David's life he was recounting when he wrote Psalm 37, but perhaps this time in Ziklag was one of them. Or Psalm 40, another Psalm of David from later in his life says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of my slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. God is a God of grace. He was to David and he is to us. No matter what we've done, no matter how much we've caused our lives to unravel because of our decisions, no matter how blind or stubborn we may have been about surrendering to him, we can come to him and receive his grace and receive his forgiveness, receive his mercy, receive his guidance, receive his strength. In just a few minutes, we'll be sharing communion together. In communion, we remember the suffering and the death of Jesus, his gift of grace by which we're saved. And in communion, we also look forward to his sure return when he will in a final and complete and perfect way, lift us out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and set our feet on solid ground, never to waver or falter again. I can't wait till that day, can you? The third thing I think David would say to us is that we don't have to seek God on our own. We're not alone. David had Abiathar the priest who had the ephod, the prayer vestment used by the priests. We don't have such a simple way of seeking guidance and receiving it as they did with the ephod. Sometimes I wish we did. Just put on the vest, ask God, get your answer, go. But we do have priests. I don't, I don't mean the Catholic kind of priests in the church. I mean, look around for a minute. Look around you. We have priests in one another. First Peter reminds us that, 
that we, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood in 1 Peter 2, 5. And then in verse 9, he goes on, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You and I are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have brothers and sisters, fellow priests, who can help us to seek the Lord, who can pray, who can help us to find our way through confusion and darkness. I went camping in my childhood um, one time when I was around five years old. My aunt and uncle and my two cousins invited me to go camping with them for a weekend. We slept in a tent. We lived in the outdoors. We cooked over a fire. And, oh, I loved it. But my family didn't ever go camping. So the next time I camped was during my college years when I was about 19 years old. <clears throat> a few friends I'd worked with at a Christian camp in Maine called to see if I wanted to go camping with them that coming weekend in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. I was so excited. The little five-year-old in me um, knew camping's cool. I was also pretty nervous. <clears throat> I was a city kid. My idea of being in the great outdoors growing up had been playing stickball and kick the can with the gang of kids from my neighborhood, or riding bicycles all over our section of our city, or ice skating or playing hockey or going sledding in the winter at a park near my house. That was the great outdoors. So I had no idea what I was doing, other than that I was going camping and hiking with experienced campers and hikers, at a place that I'd always heard of but had never seen, Mount Washington. After work that Friday, I drove uh, about an hour north to meet up with my friends, and after dinner at one of their homes, the four of us headed to Mount Washington. And we arrived to our destination at midnight. And <laughs> it's funny to think about. We oh, to be young. <clears throat> We gathered our gear and our flashlights and we hiked partway up the mountain until we came to a place along a stream that had a flat plateau where we could pitch our two tents. We set up our camp and then we headed toward the stream to brush our teeth. And I was thinking about that this morning as I was chuckling to myself on the way to church. For you younger people, that was actually what we had to do before bottled water existed. <laughs> it wasn't always a thing. Um, so we went to the stream, brushed our teeth, and we wedged our bottle of orange juice in between some rocks in the water so that in the morning we'd awake to ice-cold orange juice with our breakfast. I thought, oh, how ingenious. There were some huge boulders by the stream. <clears throat> so we climbed up on them in the pitch darkness of that night, and we sat for a long time talking together. And after lots of conversation, Lots and lots of conversation. We all got quiet. It was nice at first, listening to the rippling stream. Then it became too quiet for a non-camper like me. This is the only time in my life, and I'm truly not exaggerating. Like, sometimes we exaggerate and expand. and yeah, I'm not exaggerating. This is the only time in my life that I can recall being in total and complete darkness. I remember wondering, as the quiet went on and on, if my friends had left me. Could they have snuck away without me hearing them? 
And then I started waving my hand in front of my face, and it was so dark, I couldn't even see my hand. So as the moments of quiet grew into a long, long period of silence, my fear of being there alone grew. Could it really be possible that my experienced camping friends had left me, that I was all alone in the middle of nowhere? Total darkness, total aloneness. That's what I experienced in those frightening moments. Then I began to hum a song, which I gotta tell you is really pretty funny because I don't sing very well. And I usually don't sing in front of people because people have asked me not to sing. And um, so I began to hum a song. And one by one, my friends who I couldn't see joined in. Oh, what a relief. They were still there. I feared I was alone, but I wasn't really. Have you ever had that feeling? I feared I was alone, but I wasn't really. We hummed together, and then we sang together for a bit. We prayed together, and then we headed to our sleeping bags to sleep for the short few-hour remainder of the night. I had a brother and sisters in Christ with me, friends in the darkness and the aloneness of that night. You and I have one another, the priesthood of all believers, given to one another on our journey, people to help point us to God. In addition to Abiathar, the priest, David also had 600 men and their families with him. He really wasn't alone. I love Eugene Peterson's description in his book, Leap Over a Wall, where he describes the community that was with David. He says, by steeping our imaginations in David's stories, we come to expect not only the worst, but also the unexpected best in the wilderness, a completely unexpected and most improbable best that occurred in David's wilderness years was the formation of a people of God, a community of the sort that we now call a church. And then Peterson continues later in that chapter, we must stretch our imaginations to the horizons of God's sovereignty and see that David's company even though made up of the distressed, the debtors, and the discontented, was made by God. A people defined not where they came from or from what they did, but by by what God did in and for them. This seems to be the sort of people that God commonly uses to form companies of believers, disciples, and worshipers. Excuse me, Peterson continues. He says, Ziklag, for me, is the premier biblical location for realizing that when we get serious about the Christian life, we eventually end up in a place and among people decidedly uncongenial to what we had expected. He's talking about us. Decidedly uncongenial. And then he says, that place and that people is often called a church. He said, it's hard to get over the disappointment that God, having made an exception in my case, doesn't call nice people to repentance. Did you catch that? It's hard to get over the disappointment that God, having made an exception in my case, 
doesn't call nice people to repentance. David had this ragtag army of misfits, and God has been building communities like that ever since. Look around, my friends. He's built one of them here. And then Peterson shares about his own experience when he's joined churches whenever, wherever he's lived. He wrote, I've never been anything other than disappointed. Everyone turns out to be biblical through and through. Murmurers, complainers, the faithless, the inconstant, those plagued with doubt and riddled with sin. Every once in a while, he says, a shaft of blazing beauty seems to break out of nowhere and illuminate those companies. And then I see what my sin-dulled eyes had missed. Word of God shaped. Holy Spirit created lives of sacrificial humility. Incredible courage, heroic virtue, holy praise, joyful suffering, constant prayer, persevering obedience. Just as in communion we remember Jesus' suffering and death and we look forward to his return, in communion we also celebrate the gift of one another, the gift of community. So as we share in communion together today, in our circle style, perhaps your sin-dulled eyes, sin-dulled sin eyes, I can't say that, perhaps your sin-dulled eyes will catch a glimpse of your brothers and sisters here in new ways too. Let's pray. We thank you, God, um, for this chance that we have um, in these weeks and today to focus on, on David and his life. We thank you for this time in Ziklag today. Um, God, we ask that you help us to seek you, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, not to figure out our own way through difficulties, but to trust you. Help us, God, whenever we've strayed from you, to find our strength in you again, like, like David did. Thank you that when we stop and change direction back to you, God, that your response would be all grace. And thank you, thank you for giving us a company of others for our walk with you. Lord, you so often speak your word to us or your guidance for us through a brother or sister. So help us to help one another through the darkness to your wonderful light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so we'll be doing communion um, together today, receiving the elements, holding them to partake together, and then forming a circle around the perimeter of the sanctuary. Um, I think the children have come back. They Hopefully they found the people that they needed to be with. The deacons who are serving can come and stand at the stations now. Uh, um, there'll be two stations here at the front of the sanctuary at the interior aisles, and you'll receive the bread in the cup there, but then after you do, you'll just fan out along the walls, go that way and around, and the first people need to go meet in the middle by the sound desk uh, there and we'll form a circle um, around the exterior of the sanctuary. As always, there are small packets of gluten-free communion bread on the trays for those who may want it. We won't be dismissing by rows. Just as you're ready, we invite you to exit your seat and to, to get the elements and to fan out. And then um, 
You might need to move closer together or further apart to form one circle around the perimeter of the room. I'm sure we'll be able to figure it out once we get moving. Um, I have great confidence in you. If it would be difficult for you to stand for a lengthy um, period of time, please feel free to pull a chair into the circle or ask somebody near you. Anybody would be happy to help uh, pull a chair for you into the circle so you can sit. Um, we invite you also to join the circle even if you're not participating in the communion elements. You don't have to take communion, but please join the circle this morning. Once the circle has been formed, um, all who have the bread and the cup will take the bread together, followed by taking the bread and the cup, we'll use our traditional communion response. Um, at the close of the service, we'll have our closing song, and then the intercessors will be available to pray with people. Um, so we invite all who are following Christ Jesus to come to the table of the Lord. We've been invited to come to this table not because we must, but because we may. We've come to testify, not that we're perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. We've come not because we're strong, but because we're weak, not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty, we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Supper of the Lord is spread before you. In your hands, lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's join together in the communion response for the bread. My brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. And in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he's, he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's join in the communion response for the cup. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. singing a closing song together then following the song and the closing prayer the intercessors can come to the front uh, after the song and uh, be available to pray with you if any if anybody would like prayer uh, they'll be here at the front amazing grace how sweet